When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listeners, after a short break, welcome back to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and with me, as ever, is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi there. We hope you enjoyed season six of Game of Thrones. We're actually recording this before the season aired, but by now we should have done our weekly Game of Thrones reviews with the History of Westeros podcast. So we hope that some of you tuned in. But with the show out of the way now, we can turn back to the books and get our podcast up and running again. First of all, we want to say thank you to those of you who continue to spread the word about Radio Westeros. The best way we can grow this show is by word of mouth. So thanks to those super fans who have mentioned us to their friends and on forums and so on. It really helps us out. Yeah, thank you. And to show our appreciation, we're offering you a new episode today all about Varys Illyrio and the proposed Blackfire conspiracy. This is a popular fan theory with a lot of support, although we do realise there are those among you who oppose this theory. And we just wanted to say that there's a lot of discussion today that should be of interest whether you're a believer or not. Yeah, and although some parts of the theory seem straightforward, when you consider the scheming of Varys and Illyria within the Blackfire framework, it actually becomes very complicated. There's a lot of confusion, objections, and complications, and so we're going to endeavor to go into great detail, laying out not only the Blackfire theory, but Varys and Illyrio's proposed methodology. And so we hope that by the end of the episode, you listeners are better placed to make your own call on whether this theory is true or not. So what do we have lined up, Lady Gwyn? Well, York boy, we'll start with a look at Baby Aegon as the Targaryens tumble from grace. Then we'll look at Varys and Illyrio assessing how their partnership functions. We'll then summarize the history of the Blackfires, drawing from the World Book and the Duncan X stories. From there, we'll look at the potential clues that Aegon is really a secret Blackfire, as well as considering Varys, Illyrio, and Sarah's possible links to the Blackfires. Finally, we'll revisit Varys and Illyrio's scheming through the Blackfire theory's lens to see if it all adds up and makes sense before offering conclusions. And with readings and adverts from Westeros to break things up a bit, that will be our Blackfire episode. 
Given there's so much to discuss, we're going to make another episode for next time that will be an analysis of Aegon himself and the curious company that he keeps. So we'll hold back on Duck, Septilamore, John Connington and Aegon's invasion for next time and it should be a nice continuation. We'll be joined by Brynden Beefish of the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog as our guest for that one. Yeah, we're looking forward to another collaboration with Brendan B. Fish. And anyway, the plotting of Varys and Illyrio and the Blackfires will be the focus today. So we're going to start with the very last chapter of A Dance with Dragons. We first meet Aegon in Dance with Dragons, and we learn much and more about the plotting that has gone into raising this child with a single goal in mind, if perhaps a somewhat foggy roadmap of how he's going to get there. And then at the end of Dance... Varys assassinates Kevin Lannister in the chambers of the recently deceased Grand Maester Pycelle, unleashing the chaos that will form the backdrop of Aegon's invasion. Yeah, and Varys has some very distinct ideas of what Aegon is and what he's been raised for as he tells a bewildered Kevin as his lifeblood drains away. So to lead us into our overview of Aegon VI and his life before and after his death, Here's a reading of Varys' brief for raising the perfect prince. Doubt, division and mistrust will eat the very grounds beneath your boy king. Whilst Aegon raises his banner above Storm's End and the lords of the realm gather round him. Aegon... For a moment he did not understand, then he remembered. A babe swaddled in a crimson cloak, the cloth stained with blood and brains. Dead! He's dead! No. The eunuch's voice seemed deeper. He is here. Aegon has been shaped for rule since before he could walk. He has been trained in arms, as befits a knight to be. But that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes, he speaks several tongues, he has studied history and law and poetry. A scepter has instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. He has lived with fisher folk, worked with his hands, swum in rivers and mended nets and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish and cook and bind up a wound. He knows what it is like to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. Tommen has been taught that kingship is his right. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put his people first and live and rule for them. So, that was Varys singing the praises of his candidate in the Game of Thrones to a dying Kevin Lannister, who's instantly reminded of a baby long thought dead, quote, a babe swaddled in a crimson cloak, the cloth stained with his blood and brains. It's worth noting that earlier on that same day, in a council meeting, Kevin had discussed John Connington's seizure of Griffin's Roost and the rumors that he had a Targaryen pretender with him, with Randall Tarley. Tarly expressed doubt, but Kevin was struck by the memory of a dead baby. It says, 
Kevin Lannister had been here, in this very hall, when Tywin had laid the bodies of Prince Rhaegar's children at the foot of the Iron Throne, wrapped up in crimson cloaks. The girl had been recognizably the Princess Rhaenys, but the boy... A faceless horror of bone and brain and gore, a few hanks of fair hair. None of us looked long. Tywin said that it was Prince Aegon, and we took him at his word. So twice in Kevin's chapter, we're reminded vividly of the brutal and disfiguring nature of the death of young Aegon Targaryen. The only son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Elia of Dawn was born a year or so before Robert Baratheon took the Iron Throne from Ares. It was in Danny's first chapter in A Game of Thrones that we first learned that both Aegon and his older sister Rhaenys were killed during the sack of King's Landing, when she recalled her brother Viserys telling her stories of the Usurper's Rebellion, scenes he could have never witnessed himself, including, quote, Princess Elia of Dawn pleading for mercy as Rhaegar's heir was ripped from her breast and murdered before her eyes. And later we learn of Tywin Lannister's involvement when Ned recalls, quote, when Tywin Lannister presented Robert with the corpses of Rhaegar's wife and children as a token of fealty. But it was in Ned's dream of Rhaegar's children that we got our first hint that the baby may have been unrecognizable. Here's the passage. Lord Tywin had laid the bodies beneath the Iron Throne, wrapped in the crimson cloaks of his house guard. That was clever of him. The blood did not show so badly against the red cloth. The little princess had been barefoot, still dressed in her bedgown. And the boy, the boy. Yeah, Ned can't even bring himself to remember the condition of the baby's corpse. And we get other references about the babe's skull being dashed against a wall and learn from Ned's POV that Gregor Clegane may have been the culprit. Much later, Tyrion is confronted by Oberyn Martell, who arrives in King's Landing with this challenge. I came for justice for Elia and her children, and I will have it. Starting with this lummox, Gregor Clegane, but not, I think, ending there. Before he dies, the enormity that rides will tell me whence came his orders. Please assure your Lord Father of that. And so Tyrion takes the situation to his father, who makes a confession of sorts. It was necessary to demonstrate our loyalty. When I laid those bodies before the throne, no man could doubt that we had forsaken House Targaryen forever and Robert's relief was palpable. As stupid as he was, even he knew that Rhaegar's children had to die if his throne was ever to be secure. Yet he saw himself as a hero, and heroes do not kill children. And of course, in Gregor's infamous duel with Oberyn, he does make a confession just before Oberyn's death, saying, among other things, I killed her screaming whelp. But as much as we learn about Aegon's death, we actually pick up a few key facts about his birth and brief life as well. When Daenerys visits the House of the Undying in Clash, she sees a vision that she at first takes to be a brother Viserys, but which turns out to be Rhaegar. The man had her brother's hair, but he was taller and his eyes were a dark indigo rather than lilac. Aegon, he said to a woman nursing a newborn babe in a great wooden bed. What better name for a king? Will you make a song for him? The woman asked. 
He has a song, the man replied. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. And it's worth mentioning that that's the only time the Song of Ice and Fire is mentioned, in reference to Baby Aegon. And also, George has confirmed that the trio in the vision were Rhaegar, Elia, and Aegon. And since Rhaegar goes on to state his belief that his son is the prince that was promised, and Maester Aemon recalls that Rhaegar's conviction was based upon a comet in the sky above King's Landing on the night the child was conceived, there were obviously some very significant signs attending the birth of this child. And as far as his actual birth and first year of life go, we get a little bit more elaboration from the World Book. Aegon was born either late in the year of the False Spring, that's 281, or early the next year. In either case, not long after the turning of Harrenhal. The World Book tells us that when winter returned to King's Landing, a few months after the turning of Harrenhal, and wildfire burned on the walls of the Red Keep as Ares pyromancers tried to drive it away with sorcery, that Prince Rhaegar was not in the city to observe them, however. Nor could he be found in Dragonstone with Princess Elia and their young son, Aegon. With the coming of the new year, the Crown Prince had taken to the road with half a dozen of his closest friends and confidants on a journey that would ultimately lead him back to the Riverlands, not ten leagues from Harrenhal. And so Rhaegar left his wife and family on Dragonstone and rode off into the mysterious events that would precipitate Robert's rebellion and ultimately the deaths of most of the royal family. Following the defeat of the Royalist forces under John Connington at the Battle of the Bells, Rhaegar returned to King's Landing. We don't know exactly when Elia and her children were brought over to King's Landing from Dragonstone, but they were there when Rhaegar left the city, leaving Jaime Lannister as the sole Kingsguard protector of his parents, his brother, his wife, and his children. And it's worth noting that Elia's uncle of the Kingsguard, Prince Louis Martel, is said to have taken command of the Dornish troops sent by Elia's brother, Doran, for her defence under protest. Whether he wanted to stay to personally guard his niece, or he thought the Dornish troops should remain as well, is unclear. What is clear is that Lewin and most of his Dornish soldiers perished in the brutal battle at the Trident as did Prince Rhaegar, struck down by his cousin Robert Baratheon's warhammer. And when news of the defeat and his son's death reached Ares, it said he was sure Lewin and the Dornishmen had betrayed him. And so, when Queen Rhaella and her son Viserys were sent to Dragonstone for safety with the rebel forces bearing down upon the city, Ares refused to let Aelia and her children go, instead keeping them in King's Landing as hostages against Dorne. We've already discussed what happened when the Lannister forces entered the city, and the tragic deaths of Elia Martell and her children inspired not only one of the greatest revenge subplots of the series, but one of the great identity mysteries as well. Yeah, that's right. In Dance, a boy enters the story who soon claims to be Aegon Targaryen. The baby that Gregor slaughtered was allegedly a substitute. And of course, doubts remain in the fandom if this Aegon is real or if he's some kind of imposter, knowingly or not. 
And because the boy is linked to both Varys and Illyrio, who in turn seem to have been conspiring together for many years, up next we're going to take some time to talk about their backgrounds and partnership. Too soon, too soon, what good is war now? We are not ready, delay. As well bid me to stop time. Do you take me for a wizard? No less. Okay, so we know Varys has been conspiring to see Aegon on the Iron Throne by the end of Dance. He's a clever, scheming Master of Whispers who's used disguises, secrets, and his wits to gain power in King's Landing. But he hasn't been acting alone, and so it's time to look at Varys' partner in crime, Illyrio Mopatis, and consider the duo's plotting. We'll later reassess all of this with the Blackfire theory in mind, but for now, let's just look at it as it appears. And so we first meet Illyrio in his manse in Danny's first chapter. He's an extraordinarily large man, he lives in Pentos, and is shown to be wealthy and generous from the offset. However, the perceptive Danny soon notes that his gifts come with a cost. Here's what she thinks. Magister Illyrio was a dealer in spices, gemstones, dragonbone, and other less savoury things. He had friends in all of the nine free cities, it was said, and even beyond, in Vase Dothrak and the fabled lands beside the Jade Sea. It was also said that he'd never had a friend he wouldn't cheerfully sell for the right price. Despite living in the free city of Pentos, he owns slaves, including bed slaves. And since we later learn that Illyria wanted to bed Danny too, perhaps his libido is meant to match his girth. Large, lecherous, corrupt, and powerful, Illyrio might be the nearest thing the story has to an Aegon the Unworthy. And soon we see a scheme unfolding. Viserys is selling off his young sister to a Dothraki horde in the hope he will gain them as an army to invade Westeros with. Illyrio has brokered and facilitated this deal, and he seems to care as much for Danny's welfare as the Beggar King does. Not at all. Viserys thinks that Illyrio wants rewards further down the line, when the Iron Throne is in Targaryen hands once again. And Illyrio seems to set up the Jorah-Viserys alliance, and with Jorah being in exile, desperate for home, who's also travelled with the Dothraki, this seems like a smart move. And Illyrio's generosity knows no bounds at the wedding of Danny to Caldrogo, as he presents her with three rare and precious gifts. Dragon's eggs from the Shadowlands beyond a shy, said Magister Illyrio. The eons have turned them to stone, yet still they burn bright with beauty. But we should remember what Danny thought about gifts from Illyrio, and so the reader is left to puzzle whether or not he had ulterior motives here. He obviously had no idea that they'd hatch. As it stands, the eggs helped to firm Danny's status as a Targaryen dragon princess to Drogo and make a suitably impressive gift in front of the Dothraki. Drogo takes Danny as his wife and they head off to the Dothraki Sea. Drogo, however, isn't in the mood for invasion just yet, and so the plan stalls. Illyrio is left behind in Pentos, and with no POV in sight, it's through Arya's eyes that we meet the man again. 
Yeah, Arya's been chasing cats in King's Landing and ends up lost under the Red Keep. She sees two men talking, one matching the large and bejeweled description of Illyrio, who has, quote, the liquid accents of the free cities. Given the other man's talk of needing more little birds, we can ascertain that he is Varys, who seems to be wearing a disguise. Remember that he used to be a mummer. Varys and Illyrio talk of the inevitable Stark-Lannister conflict being too soon for their plans, and Illyrio says, What good is war now? We are not ready. Delay. And Varys later retorts, Delay, you say. Make haste, I reply. Given the conversation also concerns Danny and Drogo's potential invasion, the reader can get a rough idea of what they're talking about. They want to time Drogo's invasion with a Stark-Lannister conflict. With war and an unstable realm, the invasion would surely be more successful. Illyrio wants to delay the Stark-Lannister conflict, whilst Varys wants to hasten the invasion. However, with Varys's plea for more little birds, the reader gets the sense that their plans are large and perhaps have been in motion for a long time. Varys was, after all, Master of Whispers, as far back as the reign of Ares. Snippets of their conversation are heard by Arya, seemingly on all aspects of current high-level politics, before the men are out of sight and sound. The reader is left with more questions than answers about the goals and extent of their conspiracy, but again, what's clear, and very pertinent here, is Varys wanting to hasten Drogo's invasion. And lo and behold, the next chapter, and perhaps the very next day, Varys leaks information about pregnant Danny to King Robert, who orders her assassination. The wine cellar plot is ultimately then thwarted by none other than Illyrio, who sent a warning to Jorah. It's curious that Varys and Illyrio helped to start and stop this assassination respectively, and by the way we'll be trying to make sense of the duo's plotting later in the episode but it's worth noting that the result of the wine cellar's poison is Drogo's vengeance-laden vow of a hastened invasion of Westeros by the Dothraki. Or it would have been. In Vez Tothrak, Illyrio's plan first changed when Drogo gave Viserys a crown of liquid gold. But it's when Drogo dies sometime later that the scheme really falls apart. The Dothraki split in the aftermath, and Danny is left vulnerable after her stillbirth. There's no Dothraki invasion, and so it came a need for Varys and Illyrio to adjust their plans. However, Illyrio's gifts to Danny kept on giving as the dragon's eggs eventually hatched. Danny, a disposable pawn thus far, is now potentially very valuable. Meanwhile, Varys has manipulated Joff and Cersei into releasing Barristan from the King's Guard, perhaps predicting that he would choose Viserys as his king. And Barristan evidently did seek out Illyrio, whom he would have known last sheltered Viserys and Danny from Varys's reports in small council meetings. And later, dressed as Arstan, Barristan arrives in Carth, having been sent by Illyrio. Arstan tells Danny, The Magister begs your kind indulgence for sending us in his stead, but he cannot sit a horse as he did in his youth, and sea travel upsets his digestion. 
Yeah, Illyrio can't travel due to his digestion, or perhaps it's really because he needs to be at Pento's headquarters to continue the scheming. And we see another plan torn to pieces when, at the encouragement of Jorah Mormont, Danny takes Illyrio's ships into Slaver's Bay, seeking an army of unsullied warriors. Notice how easily Illyrio's schemes seem to fall apart, meaning they must think quickly with contingency plans. In this instance, Illyrio let three dragons slip through his fingers. And we see a similar trick to the Barristan recruitment repeated when Tyrion takes the same path. This time, Varys helps Tyrion escape from King's Landing, and it's him who points out that they are below Tywin's chambers. Although Varys initially protests, we wonder if Tywin's death was a happy accident or something Varys had anticipated. He's certainly not slow in telling Tyrion exactly how many steps to climb. Having Tywin off the board is surely beneficial to Varys if he wants to one day see King's Landing overthrown. Anyway, another valuable exile whose exit from King's Landing was hastened by Varys. Notice how so many of Illyrio's associates turn out to be exiles dreaming of home. Tyrion and Barristan are both surely great assets. After crossing the narrow sea, Tyrion is sent to Illyrio in a wine cask, and when he arrived... Tyrion gasped greedily and tried to stand, but only managed to knock the cask over sideways and spill himself out onto a hard-packed earthen floor. Above him loomed a grotesque fat man with a forked yellow beard, holding a wooden mallet and an iron chisel. His bedrobe was large enough to serve as a tourney pavilion, but its loosely knotted belt had come undone, exposing a huge white belly and a pair of heavy breasts that sagged like sacks of suet covered with coarse yellow hair. He reminded Tyrion of a dead sea cow that had once washed up in the caverns under Casterly Rock. And so a delightful description of Illyrio by Tyrion, and the imp's First words to him are rotting sea cow, which has caused much amusement to readers. Again, Aegon the Unworthy comes to mind. And this is the first time we see Illyrio after his rather shady and clandestine meeting with Varys in A Game of Thrones. Although he's genial and friendly, Tyrion is immediately as suspicious of Illyrio as the reader is, thinking... Any friend of Varys the Spider is someone I will trust just as far as I can throw him. Which is not very far in Illyrio's case. <laughs> so anyway, Illyrio is a very powerful and connected man. That much is evident. His manse is on a grand scale. We could see that he would be a great man to have on your side if you were a large-scale political conspirator. At the end of Tyrion's first chapter in Dance, Illyrio says he's sending Tyrion on to Daenerys. Now Illyrio has heard about Danny's conquering in Slaver's Bay, but he has no idea she's decided to stay in Marine. He thinks that she's going to attack Mantares next and stop at Volantis to gather food and water. So it's to Volantis that he's sending Tyrion, and not by sea, but by the River Rhoyne to avoid pirates. And Illyrio again intends to remain in Pentos, pulling strings. So with all this talk of sending people to Danny, the reader wonders what he really wants from her. It wasn't so long ago that he was selling her to Drogo. 
And here he says to Tyrion, If truth be told, I did not think Daenerys would survive for long amongst the horse lords. So Illyrio thought that Danny was going to die, and he sold her off anyway. I think that says a lot about the man. But like we said, now she's got dragons, he's all of a sudden interested in her again. This should be a clue that Danny could merely be a means to an end for Illyrio's endgame. And when Tyrion questions Illyrio about his motives with Danny, there's more cause for suspicion. He says, Is it so strange that I should wish to do some good before my days are done, to help a sweet young girl regain her birthright? But given he said he didn't think Daenerys would survive the Dothraki marriage he brokered, this is kind of hard to swallow. When pressed further, the cheesemonger says that Viserys had promised him to be his master of coin, as well as the gift of Casterly Rock. Given Tyrion's superior claim to that, it's probably no surprise that Illyrio says that he'd be happy with the former. Illyrio then proclaims, Not all that a man does is done for gain. Believe as you wish, but even fat old fools like me have friends and debts of affection to repay. Tyrion thinks that Illyrio is lying and that there is something in this venture worth more to you than coin or castles. So, plenty of reasons to be suspicious of Illyrio's motives, and the reader is left to wonder what could be more valuable to the materialistic Illyrio than coin or castles. The pair then talk about a magnificently carved statue in Illyrio's garden. It is, quote, a naked boy, poised to duel with a bravo's blade in hand. He was lithe and handsome, no older than 16, with straight blonde hair that brushed his shoulders. So Illyrio says that this is a statue of himself, and if it is him, then notice the Valyrian-esque blonde hair and the fact that he's a warrior. Illyrio was not always a rotting sea cow. So the statue could act as a way to show us Illyrio in the past, although I have to say some fans do wonder if it's a different boy being depicted. And speaking of Illyrio's past, we soon get the story of Varys and Illyrio's youth, according to the cheesemonger himself. Yeah, Tyrion, who's a naturally curious fellow, always trying to figure things out, is the perfect person to coax these answers out of Illyrio. And it's due to his inquisitiveness that Illyrio tells about two grim boys in Pentos. Varys was from Lys via Mir, but in Pentos, the duo struck up a partnership. Varys was dirt poor, and Illyria wasn't doing much better as a bravo. And here's the passage. In Mir, he was the prince of thieves, until a rival thief informed on him. In Pentos, his accent marked him, and once he was known for a eunuch, he was despised and beaten. Why he chose me to protect him, I may never know but we came to an arrangement. Varys spied on lesser thieves and took their takings. I offered my help to their victims, promising to recover their valuables for a fee. Soon, every man who had suffered a loss knew to come to me, while City's footpads and cut purses sought out Varys. Half to slit his throat, the other half to sell him what they'd stolen. We both grew rich and richer still when Varys trained his mice. 
So they grew rich with Varys using spies, and this was the beginning of his journey towards being a spymaster. In the meantime, across the narrow sea, King Aerys began to, quote, surround himself with informers, paying handsome rewards to men of dubious repute for whispers, lies, and tales of treasons, real and imagined. And so, before long, it says, whispers of a certain eunuch's talents crossed the narrow sea and reached the ears of a certain king. And it seems that Varys helped to fuel Aerys' increasing paranoia and we hear from Jamie that Ares saw traitors everywhere and Varys was always there to point out any he might have missed. And Stannis also adds that Sir Barristan once told me that the rot in King Ares' reign began with Varys. The eunuch should never have been pardoned. And here's something from the world book. The spider, as this creature soon became known to the small folk of his realm, used the crown's gold to create a vast web of informers. For the rest of Ares' reign, he would crouch at the king's side, whispering in his ear. Hmm. But in the meantime, wealth had also treated Illyrio kindly, and he married the daughter of a cousin to the Prince of Pentos. So we could see how both men rose to power, bonded together by an early poverty, and the readers left to consider at what stage they drew grand designs and started their serious plotting together. Was it always their dream from the offset, or did opportunity fuel ambition? And aside from their poverty, was there something else the pair had in common that really bonded them together in those early days? Well, there's even more intriguing exposition in this chapter, as Tyrion and Illyrio, who are themselves travelling east, discuss the Golden Company, who are headed towards Volantis, seemingly under Illyrio's orders, to where Illyrio thinks Danny will be, but remember that he's wrong. When Tyrion asserts that the Golden Company, famous for keeping their word, are under contract with a free city, Illyrio replies that some contracts are written ink and some in blood. I say no more. So pair this with Tyrion's earlier suggestion that there's something in this for Illyrio besides personal gain, and we have some intriguing mysteries blossoming together. Then we get the history of the Golden Company and their ties to the Blackfires. Here's a passage. The Golden Company was reputedly the finest of the free companies, founded a century ago by Bittersteel, a bastard son of Aegon the Unworthy. When another of Aegon's great bastards tried to seize the Iron Throne from his true-born half-brother, Bittersteel joined the revolt. Damon Blackfire had perished on the red grass field, however, and his rebellion with him. Those followers of the Black Dragon, who survived the battle, yet refused to bend the knee, fled across the narrow sea, among them Damon's younger sons, Bittersteel, and hundreds of landless lords and knights who soon found themselves forced to sell their swords to eat. Some joined the Ragged Standard, some the Second Sons, or Maiden's Men. Bittersteel saw the strength of House Blackfire scattering to the Four Winds, and so he formed a Golden Company to bind the exiles together. From that day to this, the men of the Golden Company had lived and died in the disputed lands, fighting for Mir or Lys or Tyrosh in their pointless little wars and dreaming of the land their fathers had lost. They were exiles and sons of exiles, dispossessed and unforgiven, yet formidable fighters still. 
And Tyrion is surprised about a Golden Company Targaryen alliance and questions Illyrio. How does you convince the Golden Company to take up the cause of our sweet queen when they have spent so much of their history fighting against the Targaryens? Illyrio brushed away the objection as if it were a fly. Black or red, a dragon is still a dragon. When Maelys the Monstrous died upon the Stepstones, it was the end of the male line of House Blackfire. Okay, that's a hugely important passage that we'll put under the microscope later regarding the allegiance of red and black dragons and the diminished line of the Blackfires. But soon the conversation moves away from the Blackfires and towards love. As Tyrion ponders over what became of Tisha, Illyrio surprises us by producing a locket with a woman's picture inside. He says he loved her. She was called Sarah, and this is the only mention of Sarah in the books. It says... Inside was a painted likeness of a woman with big blue eyes and pale golden hair streaked by silver. Sarah, I found her in a Lysine pillow house and brought her home to warm my bed, but in the end I wed her. And Lirio says he was barred from the royal palace when he wed his whore after the death of his highborn first wife. But it had been worth it for Sarah, whom Illyrio tells Tyrion died of grayscale. But her hands that were so soft are now kept by Illyrio as a strange token of their love. Hearing a man as insincere as Illyrio talk of love and soft hands is both moving and also arousing of suspicion. It's difficult to know when to trust this guy and when not to. And that's what makes him such a great character to place at the heart of multiple conspiracies. And so many days later on their journey, Tyrion wakes one morning to find Illyrio talking to two men on horseback. One is a large brawny man called Duck, and the other is an older man called Haldon. They talk with Illyrio about the delivery of some chests. Illyrio asks how our lad fares, and says there is, quote, a gift for the boy in one of the chests, some candied ginger. He was always fond of it. And it's noted that Illyrio is oddly sad at this moment. Again, it seems uncharacteristic of Illyrio to be emotionally invested, and perhaps as a hint that this boy being mentioned, who we learn is young Griff, means a lot to him on a personal level. Giving the boy some candy ginger as he was always fond of it sounds somewhat affectionate and causes us to ponder the nature of the relationship between him and Illyrio. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Illyrio's sadness is caused because he can't travel all the way to meet the boy. And when he turns Tyrion over to Duck and Halden and says his goodbyes, he says, Tell the boy I'm sorry that I'll not be with him for his wedding. I will rejoin you in Westeros, that I swear, by my sweet Sarah's hands. Then Illyrio dwindles off with slumped shoulders, yet another sign that he's feeling sad about something, and that's the last we see of him in the books. Okay, and so Tyrion embarks on his adventures down the Rhoyne with a motley bunch, to say the least. In the next episode, we'll cover this unlikely bunch in more detail, but for now, the important players are Griff, a.k.a. John Connington, and Young Griff, a.k.a. Aegon Targaryen. 
Tyrion uses his sharp wits to unmask their identities, and so now the reader can see Varys and Illyrio's plans in a very different light. Young Griff, or Aegon, claims to have been swapped as a baby by Varys for a common boy dubbed the Pisswater Prince by Tyrion. When Aegon Targaryen had his head dashed against a wall by Gregor Clegane, leaving him unrecognizable, the story goes it was really this Pisswater boy, with the real Aegon having been spirited away to safety. Yeah, and it's a huge reveal. And at last we begin to understand Varys' agenda, although it brings up more questions than answers. And to underline George's absolute love of his and identities, former hand to Ares, John Connington, is also unmasked by Tyrion, who himself is posing as Yolo. John was exiled by Ares for losing the Battle of the Bells whilst failing to kill an injured Robert Baratheon, and so he blames himself for Rhaegar's downfall. Driven by this guilt and a hatred of the usurper, we can see that Connington is the perfect person to spearhead the attempt to put Aegon on the Iron Throne. His quest for atonement is clear when he thinks... I failed the father, but I will not fail the son. Connington is also supposed to be dead. He was enlisted by Varys 12 years ago when he was serving in the Golden Company and faked his death as part of the plot. This resurrection of Rhaegar's friend and ally should pave the way for the acceptance of Aegon as Rhaegar's son, and so Varys and Illyrio's plotting is nothing short of ingenious here. But soon Tyrion throws a giant spanner in the works by filling Aegon's heads with doubts over a game of Savas and using Inception-esque tactics to plant the seeds that will manipulate the boy into going to Westeros rather than east to marry Danny as planned. And later, near Volantis, Tyrion's plan bears fruit, with the desperate-to-be-a-man Aegon convincing the Golden Company and the recently grayscale John Connington to invade Westeros in the face of Danny's rather whimsical decision to stay in Marine. Yeah, another of Varys and Illyrio's plans on the scrap heap. But all's not lost. The last we hear in the books, from Varys and to Kevin... Aegon's capture of Storm's End is apparently imminent, and so we've come a full circle to that scene in the A Dance with Dragons epilogue. The invasion itself will be well covered in the next episode, but for now we come to the question many A Song of Ice and Fire fans are currently asking. Is Aegon Targaryen authentic, or is he really a Blackfire? Yeah, and now we've run through the plotting of Varys and Illyrio, we're in a good position to lay out the Blackfire theory and give the case for it. We'll go through the Blackfire history, look at the evidence, the problems, and then reevaluate Varys and Illyrio's plans with the Blackfire theory in mind to see not just snippets of evidence, but the wider picture and implications of the whole. Yeah, it's much better to see the full picture, we think. And so... Who are the Blackfires? Some of you might be asking yourselves. They're not mentioned in the five books very often. And the first objection to the theory is that the Blackfires aren't relevant enough for a central plot like this. 
We did get some history of the Blackfires and the Golden Company in this section, but we need to look a little deeper. So coming up next is the history of the Blackfires. But first, here's a reading of Illyrio revealing a small part of his plans to Tyrion. Our last news of Queen Daenerys is old and stale, I fear. By now she will have left Marine, we must assume. She has her host at last, a ragged host of sellswords, Dothraki horselords, and unsullied infantry, and she will no doubt lead them west to take back her father's throne. Magister Illyrio twisted open a pot of garlic snails, sniffed at them, and smiled. At Volantis, you will have fresh tidings of Daenerys, we must hope he said as he sucked one from its shell. Dragons and young girls are both capricious, and it may be that you will need to adjust your plans. Griff will know what to do. Will you have a snail? The garlic is from my own gardens. I could ride a snail and make better pace than this litter of yours. Tyrion waved the dish away. You place a deal of trust in this man, Griff. Another friend of your childhood? No, a sellsword, you would call him. But Westerosi-born, Daenerys needs men worthy of her cause. Illyrio raised a hand. I know, sellswords put gold before honor, you are thinking. This man Griff will sell me to my sister. Not so. I trust Griff as I would trust a brother. Another mortal error. Then I shall do likewise. The Golden Company marches toward Volantis as we speak there to await the coming of our queen out of the east. Beneath the gold, the bitter steel. I had heard the Golden Company was under contract with one of the free cities. Mir, Illyrio smirked. Contracts can be broken. There's more coin and cheese than I knew, said Tyrion. How did you accomplish that? The magister waggled his fat fingers. Some contracts are written ink and some in blood. I say no more. So, as we mentioned, a hint there at the significance of blood, and we'll be talking more about that later. But speaking of blood, now we're going to take a look at the history of the Blackfires, which begins with the reign of King Aegon IV, who took the throne in 172 AC, nearly 130 years before the events of Game of Thrones. His rule began well enough, with Aegon described as the brightest prince at court in a generation. However, Aegon had a huge flaw in his personality, his desires. He was lustful and gluttonous. As a youth, he indulged in many mistresses, fathering numerous bastards even after his marriage to his sister Nares. This indulgence later bloomed into a full-scale corruption that, as the World Book puts it, haunted the realm for generations. This legacy was what caused him to be known as Aegon the Unworthy and carried the reputation as one of the worst kings in history. And while his reign slipped into decadence and cruelty, Aegon's most consistent sin was indulgence of his sexual desires. It was said that Aegon never slept alone and did not count a night complete until he had spent himself inside a woman. And Aegon himself claimed to have slept with over 900 women, one of whom was Bethany Bracken, whose affair with Sir Terence Toyne of the Kingsguard led to that night's torture and execution. 
the resulting vengeance-driven plot by Toyn's brothers to kill Aegon, and their subsequent deaths at the hands of Prince Aemon the Dragonite, led to the downfall of House Toyn, which will be relevant to our discussion later when we consider Miles Toyn of the Golden Company. And with such a large tally of sexual partners, there were obviously consequences, and Aegon sired countless bastards on all manner of women, from noble-born ladies and maidens to common tavern wenches, six of his nine acknowledged mistresses and his cousin Princess Dana. And it's the bastard child with Dana that turned out the most significant for the immediate future of the Seven Kingdoms and the Blackfire story. He was named Damon Waters. Yeah, Damon was one of the so-called Great Bastards, which were bastards born of noble mothers and included Brynden Rivers, Shara Seastar, and Agor Rivers, among others. Damon was raised at court with the privileges of a young prince, showing great promise at arms. He was knighted and acknowledged by his father at age 12, making him the youngest knight in the reign of the Targaryens. Not content with simply knighting the boy, the king also gave him the famous Targaryen sword Blackfire. Yeah, and this moment can't be underestimated, as we'll explore later. For now, ponder on the fact Aegon has given the sword wielded by Aegon the Conqueror, possibly the most important piece of regalia of the Targaryen dynasty, to his 12-year-old bastard son, overlooking his true-born son, Daron, who was a man grown with children of his own by this time. With the addition of gifts of land and other honours, this gift to his bastard, who began going by the name Damon Blackfire, was to shape things to come. So, Prince Daron was the child of Aegon's marriage with his sister, Queen Nerys. While Aegon and Nerys did not have a happy marriage, Nerys had always been close to their other brother, Aemon, known as the Dragon Knight, who was a sworn brother of the Kingsguard. The tragic triangle of Nerys and Aemon, who loved each other, and Aegon, who apparently despised his well-respected siblings, appears to have been well-known. And the World Book tells us that Grandmaster Caith believed it was likely that the first accusation of adultery against Nerys were instigated by her husband. Yeah, and this was at a time when Daron and Aegon were clashing over the king's plans to invade Dawn. And it was during this time that Aegon first threatened to remove Daron as his heir and name one of his bastards instead. Within a few years, Aemon the Dragon Knight died defending his brother from an assassination plot and Nerys died in childbed. After which, Aegon's references to Daron's alleged illegitimacy became more frequent. The realm became increasingly divided when Daron married Maria Martel of Dawn. A clear anti-Dornish party grew, in opposition to an anti-Aegon party that wanted to end the corruption of Aegon's reign. But despite the clear rivalry, the king never disinherited his son. Aegon's reign ended in 184 AC when he died at 49 years of age, grossly overweight and barely able to walk. The World Book describes a horrible death with rotting limbs and incapacitation, but the most notable thing about his passing was his final act. Aegon IV Targaryen legitimized all of his acknowledged bastards from the baseborn to the highborn. To quote the World Book, for the realm it meant 
blood and fire for five generations. Okay, so that's a clear reference to the Blackfire Rebellions, which is what we're going to talk about now. And it's interesting to view this through the eyes of a Blackfire supporter, which is something we're able to do via Duncan Egg, where in fact we can actually see both points of view. So let's look at the first talking point, the sword. As Dunk thinks in The Sworn Sword, if Aegon the Unworthy had given his sword to his heir, Daron, instead of his bastard, Daemon, there might never have been a Blackfire Rebellion. And then later in The Sworn Sword, Sir Eustace Osgrey calls Daemon Blackfire the king who bore the sword. It's clear how important and symbolic the Blackfire supporters think Aegon bestowing the sword Blackfire upon Daemon was. Yeah, and later Egg asks Sir Eustace, why would you choose Daemon? To which he replies, why, lad? You ask me why? Because Daemon was the better man. The old king saw it, too. He gave the sword to Daemon. Blackfire, the sword of Aegon the Conqueror, the blade that every Targaryen king had wielded since the conquest. He put that sword in Daemon's hand the day he knighted him, a boy of twelve. Well, Egg replies that the sword was given because Daron was not a swordsman, and so giving it to Daemon was a choice born out of practicality, not preference. So here we see the Blackfire and Targaryen points of view on this matter. And it's worth noting how important the sword is to the Blackfires as it comes up again in the Mystery Night, with Daemon II actually losing rebel support because he doesn't have the sword. Okay, so that's one point, the sword. And point two is the allegations of illegitimacy thrown at Daron. Again, Blackfires cite this as part of their justification in rebelling against the Targaryens. Sir Eustace calls him Daron the Falseborn, a nod to the notion that Daron was really a bastard of Nares and Aemon the Dragon Knight. So, whether Aegon really thought Daron was a bastard may never be known. He was noted as being at odds with Daron over invading Dorne when he made those allegations, so he did have a motive to try to undermine his son. But it's also worth considering if Aegon really believed this. Would that be the reason for giving Daemon the sword? Well, with Sir Eustace calling Daron Falseborn, while this could have been propaganda, some Blackfire supporters certainly could have believed that this was the reason for Aegon's legitimization of all his bastards too, to give them somewhat equal status with his alleged bastard prince. So we can see both sides of the coin here. And that brings us to the third point. What was going through Aegon's head with this legitimization? Was it revenge or perhaps a more legitimate reason? Did he intend to spiral his kingdom into civil war? Was he seeking payback for Daron's stance on Dorne? If so, why not simply disinherit Daron? We'll leave it to you to think about these questions, but one thing's for sure. With Daron being 17 years older than Daemon and an established leader at court, the crown prince took the throne after the demise of his father. Okay, so let's look at the reign of Daron, which saw the first Blackfire Rebellion. Daron wore his father's crown, a symbolic act designed to mute any rumours of his illegitimacy. 
Darren tried to root out the corruption among his councillors that was part of his father's legacy. He honoured the arrangements set by Aegon with regards to his great bastards, often keeping them close. Whether out of precaution or out of honour, who can say, but the interesting thing here is the relationship with Daemon Blackfire. Yeah, so Darren wed Daemon to Rohan of Tyrosh as their father intended when Daemon was 14. But as Barristan thinks in A Dance with Dragons, Daemon Blackfire loved the first Daenerys and rose in rebellion when denied her. So this first Daenerys was Daron's sister and Daemon's half-sister. It's said that Daemon's problem wasn't with the Tyroshi marriage, but it was later when Daron refused that he be allowed to take Daenerys as a second wife. And so apparently the final straw for Daemon came about when Daenerys was married off to Maron Martell, the brother of Daron's wife, Mariah. And so another huge talking point that shouldn't be underestimated in a Blackfire overview is the role of Dorne. Darren wanted to unite the realm, and so he married a Martell. He also wed his sister Daenerys to the Prince of Dorne, and now counted the Dornish as family. And now more than ever, there were Dornish at court, Dornish getting political and financial concessions, and Dornish becoming more powerful. But by making new friends, Darren was also making enemies of lords who had historically seen the Dornish as enemies or felt threatened by their presence. Some people began to look for alternative leadership. In The Sworn Sword, Sir Eustace tells Egg, You can know a man by his friends, Egg. Darren surrounded himself with maesters, septons and singers. Always there were women whispering in his ear, and his court was full of Dornishmen. How not, when he had taken a Dornish woman into his bed and sold his own sweet sister to the Prince of Dawn, though it was Damon that she loved? Okay, so with Damon being denied his love and with the Dornish situation, we have two major seeds of the first Blackfire Rebellion. But there's more, so let's look closer at the contrast between Darren and Damon. Darren is described as being no warrior. He was small, with thin arms, and more scholarly than knightly, and quite comically, he had a little belly that would wobble when he walked. Once again, here's Sir Eustace, telling why he liked Damon. Damon stood straight and proud, and his stomach was flat and hard as an oaken shield, and he could fight with axe or lance or flail. He was as good as any knight I ever saw, but with the sword he was the warrior himself. When Prince Damon had Blackfire in his hand, there was not a man to equal him. And so we see how, for Damon's supporters, there was an air of perceived perfection about the man. Yeah, in the world book it says that Damon had... Grown tall and powerful, half a god among mortal men, and with the conqueror's sword in his possession. So the sword, the illegitimacy rumours against Daron, the legitimisation of Daemon, the anti-Dornish sentiment, the looks and the martial skill of Daemon, the marriage of Daenerys to a Dornishman... These are some of the major factors that triggered the Blackfire rebellions. But there's another. Yes, Bittersteel. Agor Rivers was the son of Aegon IV and Barbara Bracken. 
After the Bethany Bracken and Terence Toyne debacle, the Brackens had fallen from favor, and Bittersteel had a rival in his half-brother, Bloodraven, who was half-Blackwood. The ancient rivalry between Blackwood and Bracken was exacerbated in the days of Aegon IV. Bittersteel loved Shara Seastar, but she chose Bloodraven, and as we hear from Barristan, Bittersteel and Bloodraven both loved Shara Seastar, and the Seven Kingdoms bled, implying a correlation between this rivalry and the Blackfire rebellions. Following Shara's choice, Bittersteel convinced his half-brother, Damon Blackfire, to give him the hand of his eldest daughter, Kala, in marriage, and afterwards he is said to have spoken poison in Damon's ear, urging him to press his claim. Yet when Damon ultimately decided that he would press his claim, word of his plans came to Daron, probably via Bloodraven, and the King's Guard was sent to arrest Damon Blackfire. With the help of Sir Quentin Ball, he escaped the Red Keep, and his allies used the attempted arrest as a pretext for civil war. And so the realm soon found itself embroiled in the first of the Blackfire rebellions. In 196 AC, there was widespread fighting between the Reds and the Blacks, and we get some measure in the Dunkin' Egg stories of how this civil war split the realm. The Blackfire cause was by no means a minor rebellion. The scale was huge, and the reverberations lived on for generations afterward. The Battle of the Red Grass Field, coming after nearly a year of sporadic fighting, was the defining moment of the rebellion. And the most comprehensive account comes from a character who was there in person, Sir Eustace. Yeah, Eustace tells Dunk how Damon Blackfire fought Sir Gawain Corbray of the Kingsguard for nearly an hour. When Corbray fell, Damon dismounted to keep his foe from being trampled and called for maester. And this chivalrous act turned out to be the end of Damon Blackfire. It's clear that the author wanted to highlight Damon's honour, perhaps asking us to judge the Blackfire Rebellion with the same compassion that Damon showed Corbury. It certainly makes a more nuanced story with Damon being an honourable man here. So anyway, Bloodraven and his archers had taken the high ground. The arrows they rained on Damon, which killed him and his two eldest sons, were, to quote Sir Eustace, driven as much by sorcery as by Bloodraven's bow. Bittersteel led a huge and desperate charge, fighting his first duel with his brother Bloodraven, who lost his eye. The World Book tells us that the defining moment was when Baylor Breakspear and Prince Makar formed a hammer and anvil respectively, hitting the Blackfires on two fronts. However, Sir Eustace believes Damon's kindness to Corbray was the defining factor, and that, quote, it was the kinslayer who turned the tide with a white arrow and a black spell, which emphasizes the fear and hatred many in the realm had for Brendan Rivers. So 10,000 men lost their lives at the Red Grass Field, so named for the blood that soaked the grass in its aftermath. The Blackfires lost their leader, and we get the sense from Duncan Egg that everyone knew someone who died there. Bitterness and discontent continued for years, and Bittersteel himself escaped to Essos, and for the Targaryens, the Blackfire movement was a weed that continued to spread seeds. 
And in 211, 15 years after the Redgrass Field, the so-called Second Blackfire Rebellion ended before it really got started. The Mystery Night gives us ringside seats to the White Walls Tourney, ostensibly hosted to celebrate the marriage of Lord Ambrose Butterwell to a daughter of House Frey, but in reality held as a cover-up for rebellion. As Egg tells Dunk, this is a traitor's tourney, sir. And because we'll be covering the Duncan Egg story soon, we won't go into too much detail. But Egg recognizes that many of the lords in attendance are from houses that supported the Black Dragon. So the plans to launch a second rebellion, led by Damon's son, Damon II, were thwarted by Bloodraven and the nascent rebellion was quashed. And those who supported the rebels were punished. And it's notable that Bittersteel apparently did not fully support this rebellion, meaning Damon the Younger was given neither foreign aid nor the Blackfire Sword, which was apparently controlled by Aegor Rivers by this time. There are numerous reasons given for Bittersteel's lack of support, that he didn't deem Aegon II worthy, or that he thought that their plans were unsound, that he didn't have faith in Damon's dragon dreams, and perhaps that he disapproved of Damon's apparent homosexuality. Why Bittersteel was in control of a sword that should really have been Damon's birthright is another question altogether. And so, Damon the Younger was incarcerated at the Red Keep for the rest of his life. He was a very valuable hostage indeed. All the Targaryens had to do was keep Damon alive and close, and so prevent Bittersteel crowning his younger brother Hagon. With Damon the Younger alive, there could be no third Blackfire Rebellion. And this plan worked until Damon II died, not as many years later as his cousins on the throne might have hoped. In 219, with Damon dead, Bittersteel crowned his brother Hagon and the third Blackfire Rebellion was launched. The World Book gives us this summary. Of the deeds done then, both good and ill, of the leadership of Makar, the actions of Arian Brightflame, the courage of Makar's youngest son, and the second duel between Bloodraven and Bittersteel, we know well. The pretender Hagon I Blackfire died in the aftermath of the battle, slain treacherously after he had given up his sword. But Sir Aegor Rivers, Bittersteel, was taken alive and returned to the Red Keep in chains. Many still insist that if he had been put to the sword then and there, as Prince Arion and Bloodraven urged, it might have meant an early end to the Blackfire ambitions. So, rather than give in to the calls for Bittersteel's death, King Aerys I showed mercy and sent him to the Wall. Killing Bittersteel might have been the final nail in the Blackfire coffin, which brings up the theme of mercy. George likes to toy with this idea, and in the words of Ned Stark, mercy is never a mistake. But we think that the ambiguous nature of mercy is classic human heart and conflict with itself territory. And in this instance, since Bittersteel escaped on his way to the Wall and went on to continue opposing the crown, one could well question Ned's words. Okay, and in between the third and fourth Blackfire rebellions, there was a significant moment in regards to the current plot. 
King Makar died, leaving a crisis of succession. A great council meeting was announced, and Damon Blackfire's fifth son, Aenys, made a claim from exile in Tyrosh, and Bloodraven invited him to King's Landing in person, promising safe passage. But when Aenys arrived, he was executed, Bloodraven's warning to any remaining Blackfire sympathisers. So, this not only confirmed Bloodraven as a kinslayer in the eyes of many, but as punishment, he was sent to the Wall by the new king, Aegon V. Bloodraven accepted his fate, claiming he had sacrificed his honor for, quote, the good of the realm. This is at once an interesting moral concept, and it also echoes Varys' sentiment when he's killing Kevin, quote, this was not done from malice, it was for the realm. Okay, and now we get to the Fourth Rebellion. The treacherous murder of Aenys Blackfire strengthened the resolve of the exiled Blackfire contingent. Their king was now Hagon's eldest son, named Daemon III. In 236, Hagon, Bittersteel and the Golden Company crossed the Narrow Sea, landing on Massey's Hook, south of Blackwater Bay. However, they found little support from the Westerosi, and at the Battle of Windwater Bridge, Damon III was killed by Sir Duncan the Tall, and the Blackfires were shattered. Bittersteel once again escaped, and was later killed fighting with sellswords in a clash between Tyrosh and Mir. He was 69 years old, and left a legacy of being the key coordinator of Blackfire activity, and of course, the founder of the Golden Company. And finally, many years later, came the War of the Nine Penny Kings. Details are quite sketchy, but it seems that in the wake of Bittersteel's death, there was a struggle for control of the Golden Company. We're unsure of the exact lineage, but eventual control was seized by Maley's Blackfire, called Maley's the Monstrous for his huge upper body and the presence of a second head sprouting from his neck. And after Maylis took control of the Golden Company, a group called the Band of Nine, comprised of pirates, sellswords, exiles, merchants, and Maylis himself, formed in Essos. They were renamed the Ninepenny Kings when Prince Duncan Targaryen remarked that crowns were being sold nine a penny. The aftermath of the tragedy of Summerhall and the passing of the throne from Aegon V to Jaehaerys II must have encouraged this group's Blackfire pretensions, and the Band of Nine formed a plan to take the Stepstones as a base to launch an invasion of Westeros. But King Jaehaerys took the battle to the Ninepenny Kings. A number of main book characters such as Barristan, Tywin, and Hoster and Brynden Tully are veterans of the conflict, which raged for about a year. Eventually, it was Barristan Selmy who, quote, decided the issue in a single stroke. This is when he slew Maylies in single combat, killing the fifth Blackfire pretender and snuffing out the male line of the Blackfires. With this conflict ended, the World Book tells us that the curse that Aegon the Unworthy had inflicted upon the Seven Kingdoms by giving his sword to his bastard son was finally ended. So, the Blackfires aren't actually mentioned in A Song of Ice and Fire until A Storm of Swords, first briefly by Stannis and Jaime, and later when Catelyn tells Rob 
the Blackfire Pretenders troubled the Targaryens for five generations until Barristan the Bold slew the last of them on the Stepstones. And in spite of this late mention, the Blackfire history turns out to be very deep and rich, and the reader gets the sense that this background is being given to us for a reason. And as a footnote, we just want to say that our friends at History of Westeros podcast are doing an in-depth series on Blackfire history where they go into enormous detail. So if you want more Blackfire history, check that out if you haven't already. And up next, we're going to move on from history to theory as we put the Aegon Blackfire theory under the microscope. Connington may have more than the Golden Company. It is said he has a Targaryen pretender. A feigned boy is what he has. That may be. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Or not. Okay, and now it's time to look at the Aegon as a Blackfire theory, commonly known as Phaegon, which of course is short for fake Aegon. Like our episodes on RLJ and the GNC, we want to acknowledge that this is a fan theory that many people have contributed to, so a big shout out to all those who've debated this in the fan forums at Reddit, Westeros, and other places. We'll do our best to represent the theory and add our own thoughts where we can. Okay, the basic premise of the theory is that Varys and Lirio are conspiring to put Aegon on the Iron Throne, who is actually an unknowing descendant of the Blackfire line. For the time being, he's being dressed up as a Targaryen by the duo to better facilitate an invasion of Westeros, with the Targaryens having many more allies than the Blackfires would have. Yeah, John Connington knows how integral Westerosi allies are to Aegon's cause, and presumably so do Varys and Illyrio, which would be the whole point of cloaking a black dragon in red in the first place. Since the first Blackfire Rebellion, we can see that support for the Blackfires has decreased and dwindled into non-existence, becoming the primary reason for their failures. By the time of the War of the Nine Penny Kings, it wasn't even called the Blackfire Rebellion because there were no rebels, with the Blackfires desperately turning to Essos for support. 
This would be why Varys and Illyrio would need Aegon to present as a Targaryen and not a Blackfire, the whole raison d'etre of this plot, and so a motive for the deception is established. And we'll divide this into two parts. First, the evidence that Aegon might not be who his handlers claim he is, and later we'll look at the Varys, Illyrio and Sarah triangle and go on to assess their roles in this alleged conspiracy. So first, let's overlap with some of the history fresh in our minds. In The Sworn Sword, we learn of the first Blackfire Rebellion and how it divided the realm. We get a really good sense of the tragedy felt on both sides and the pervasiveness of the Civil War. Then in the Mystery Night, we get to see a Blackfire Rebellion wilt before our eyes. Rather than being merely a backdrop this time, the Blackfires are center stage. So as readers, we get the sense that this Blackfire theme is growing in Duncan Egg, and we think it will remain central to those stories right through. So it begs the question, is George seeking to continue this Blackfire story right into A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, we think he definitely likes to link the tales of Duncan Egg to the main story when he can. It makes the world seem more coherently built, and we think it makes for good writing. So far, we've had Walder Frey, Bloodraven, Aemon and Dunk Shield appear or mentioned in both series, with characters like Old Nan and the Ghost of High Heart almost certain to make an appearance in Duncan Egg at some point. So, could a Blackfire plot in this story be the perfect way to further bridge Duncan Egg to Ice and Fire? Would George really pass up on the opportunity to bring in this central part of modern history? Or is the Blackfire story going to be contained in historical tomes and prequels? And it's true that Blackfires weren't present in the Hedge Knight or in the main series until the Storm of Swords, which some take as a sign that they weren't all that important. However, it could just be that the Blackfire idea didn't come to George until quite far along, remembering that he often talks about his Gardner style of writing. The world book further highlights the importance of the Blackfires. In their era, almost as much seems to be written about them as their Targaryen counterparts. And remember, one of the key points about Blackfires historically they just kept coming back. Okay, so there's the angle that the Blackfire backstory might be giving us a grounding for another Blackfire tilt at the Iron Throne. Along similar lines, let's consider the Blackfire line. In Dance with Dragons, Illyrio is talking to Tyrion and says this, When Maelys the Monstrous died upon the Stepstones, it was the end of the male line of House Blackfire. Yeah, so on first glance, the Blackfires are extinct, but it comes with a disclaimer. The male line is extinguished, but perhaps not the female. So if George really wanted to end the Blackfires, why would he give this clear hint that the female line is still alive? The fact it comes from Illyrio makes it all the more suspicious, as we'll discuss later, but there does seem to be life in the Blackfires, and to paraphrase Tyrion, life means possibilities. So, now let's look at an early hint that Aegon might be a fake. In the House of the Undying, Danny sees this in the Slayer of Lies triad. 
A cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. And Danny later terms this a mummer's dragon. Now a cloth dragon seems like something inauthentic and perhaps fake. This would also fit the Slayer of Lies tag. The mummer's dragon also works well, given Varys was a mummer. It's worth pointing out that this is in Clash, probably before George thought of introducing the Blackfire story, so we would suggest that it's possible he always intended Aegon to be a fake, and could have amended that to him being a Blackfire later on. Either way, Aegon as the Cloth Dragon and one of the lies Danny must slay works and seems to us a reasonable interpretation of the prophecy. And another point to know is the way Danny describes what mummer's dragons are. She says, mummers use them in their follies to give the heroes something to fight. And we wonder if this could be a metatextual hint at Aegon's role in the story, Blackfire or not. Okay, and next is some symbolism. In Feast, Septim Meribold tells Brienne and Pod about the clanking dragon. Once upon a time, the inn now known as the Inn at the Crossroads had a dragon as its sign. Here's the passage. A three-headed dragon of black iron hung from a wooden post. The beast was so big it had to be made in a dozen pieces, joined with rope and wire. When the wind blew, it would clank and clatter, so the inn became known far and wide as the Clanking Dragon. Is the Dragonstein still there? asked Podrick. No, said Septon Maribold. When the smith's son was an old man, a bastard son of the fourth Aegon rose up in rebellion against his true-born brother and took for his sigil a black dragon. These lands belonged to Lord Darry then, and his lordship was fiercely loyal to the king. The sight of the black iron dragon made him wroth, so he cut down the post, hacked the sign into pieces, and cast them into the river. One of the dragon's heads washed up on the quiet isle many years later, though by that time it was red with rust. So, this idea originated on Reddit and has been discussed across the fandom that the Black Dragon was cast into the river as the Blackfires were exiled across the Narrow Sea, and when the Black Dragon washed up again, it's turned red. Consider that although the dragon is now red, it would still be black underneath. And so Blackfire theorists wonder if this is all the secret symbolism pertaining to Aegon's invasion and secret identity. Yeah, a black dragon with a red veneer, washing up. An interesting piece of symbolism, perhaps. And then there's the alleged baby swap. Remember that baby Aegon had his head smashed in brutally by Gregor? For Varys's baby swap to have worked, he would have had to have known in advance that the baby would be left unrecognisable. This isn't knowledge that he could possibly have possessed, and so his Pisswater Prince story doesn't really make much sense. Okay, now consider something about Aegon. When Tyrion's assessing him, it says, the dwarf put his age at 15, 16, or near enough to make no matter. 
Aegon Targaryen would be 17 or 18 years old by this point in the story, and while Tyrion isn't always the best at age guesstimation, and there is a margin of error, consider this. In our opinion, Aegon acts more like a 15 or 16-year-old than a 17 or 18-year-old. He's referred to as a boy, and he has an ongoing theme of a boy becoming a man, so in a sense, the younger interpretation does fit. But while this might be cause for suspicion, these are fine margins, really, and so this evidence isn't exactly damning. Yes, yeah, so two fine margins to be considered strong evidence, we think. And now back to Illyrio and the Golden Company in Dance. It seems that Illyrio has hired the Golden Company to take Aegon to Westeros and take the Iron Throne. So let's think about the Golden Company. They were founded by bitter steel, and they carry a skull dipped in gold. And their war cry is, beneath the gold, the bitter steel. Yeah, it couldn't be any more clear that bitter steel is at the very heart of this organization. And bitter steel founded the Golden Company to put a blackfire on the Iron Throne. This company reeks of blackfire. And they also supposedly never break a contract. Until they do, for Illyrio. Yeah, in Feast, Arianna's in disbelief about this, pointing out that the company's boast since the time of Bittersteel is, our word is as good as gold. So this is a big issue. They broke contracts with Mir as a war with Tyrosh and Lys was closing in. When Tyrion asks Illyrio how he got them to break their contract, the Magister waggled his fat fingers and said, some contracts are written ink and some in blood. I say no more. So, a very mysterious answer there from Illyrio. And what could possibly be the contract written in blood? What would cause the Golden Company to break their word and honor? What would be so important to this organization? And importantly, this contract was signed by Miles Toyne, Blackheart. So it's his wishes we should pay attention to. And if you remember what we said about House Toyne, Miles has a family history that lends itself to opposing Targaryens. And he was apparently proud of his nickname. It says, Miles had loved the name and all it hinted at. And what does the name Blackheart hint at in the context of being the Golden Company's leader and having his house brought to ruin by Targaryens? Surely that he was a Blackfire loyalist and supporter. And it also says that Varys had been adamant about the need for secrecy. The plans he and Illyrio had made with Blackheart had been known to them alone. The rest of the company had been left ignorant. And although it could be true that they're referring to the Aegon Targaryen plans, with the contract writ in blood with Blackheart, it could be that the real plan all along contained the secret information that Aegon is in fact a Blackfire. Yeah, so the Golden Company are sometimes portrayed as a ragtag bunch of exiles who simply want to go home. And this is mostly true, we think. But Tyrion wonders how Illyrio got the Golden Company to fight for Danny. Illyrio implies the company are desperate to go home, saying, black or red, a dragon is still a dragon. So the Golden Company, whose lower ranks, and very probably captains as well, we think, wouldn't know about a Blackfire plot, are happy to join Danny and Aegon Targaryen. 
Their captains laughed at Viserys when he approached them as the Beggar King, but that was because he was poor and weak, certainly no great ally for a sellsword company. Later, however, they do agree to a plan to join with him and the Dothraki, as told by Tristan Rivers. Viserys Targaryen was to join us with 50,000 Dothraki screamers at his back. So it seems that little enmity remains between the Golden Company and the Targaryens. After all their history, it now appears that black or red, a dragon is still a dragon, is true for some, most, or all of the Golden Company. Understandable, given the demise of the Blackfires and the men's desire to return to their homeland, in some cases after generations of exile. But was this also the case with Blackheart, as crucially it's his secret pact with Illyrio, the Golden Company now follow with that contract writ in blood, despite Blackheart being four years dead. The Golden Company might be following orders to seat Aegon Targaryen on the Iron Throne, as ordered by Blackheart, not realising that the boy is secretly a Blackfire, as known only to Varys, Illyrio and Blackheart, and perhaps to be unveiled somewhere down the line later in the game. Okay, so in summary of the Blackfire theory, we have the history of the Blackfires and their historical aspiration for the Iron Throne. There's the potential bridging of Duncan Egg and A Song of Ice and Fire. There's life in the Blackfire female line. There's the Golden Company and their legendary devotion to their founder, coupled with a contract signed by Blackheart. There's also the symbolic cloth and clanking dragons and the suspicious story of a baby swap. This all forms the heart of the Fagon theory and is enough to provoke further questions. And now we're going to point those questions at the big players in the Blackfire theory, Varys, Illyrio, and Sarah. Illyrio thrust his right hand up his sleeve and drew out a silver locket. Inside was a painted likeness of a woman with big blue eyes and pale golden hair streaked by silver. Sarah, I found her in a Lysine pillow house and brought her home to warm my bed, but in the end I wed her. Okay, so now let's talk about those at the heart of the alleged Blackfire conspiracy, who our friend Ragnarok has called the Blackfire Triangle. Varys, Illyrio, and Sarah. We'll talk about who is and who isn't the Blackfire between them. Okay, so in the Blackfire theory, Sarah and Illyrio are parents of Aegon. One or both must be a Blackfire descendant, and Varys must be either a Blackfire or a sympathiser. This has sparked many suggestions for Blackfire combinations from the fandom, and to be honest, there isn't a great deal of evidence to support placing these characters in particular slots, so really it could be any combination. Yeah, some fans think Sarah was Varys' sister, others think Sarah is the only Blackfire. One branch of the theory, which was named Brightfire and elaborated on by a poster called Valpagar, supposes Varys and Sarah are descendants of Arion Brightflame, with Illyrio as the Blackfire. 
So we can see that there's lots of options and combinations. We guess that as long as Illyrio or Serra are Blackfires, it doesn't affect the theory too much, but it's fun to speculate. Serra is interesting, as she's hardly mentioned in the books. Some people will even think that she's Septa more. Some think Varys's sister, and others think that she was a Blackfire, and that Illyrio genuinely loved her. But Tyrion points to these fine friends who grew you from a bean. This paints a picture of Aegon as someone who was manufactured right from the outset. So we wonder if Sarah simply had the right looks to create a Valyrian-looking son with Illyrio. Here's a description of Sarah. A woman with big blue eyes and pale golden hair streaked by silver. So the blue eyes support the idea that she could be Aegon's mother. The boy's eyes are also blue by day, but in a certain light they look purple, and we wonder if this was true of Sarah as well. She already has the classic Targaryen hair. In that case, Sarah would have the features Illyrio might have been looking for in a woman. If she was a slave, he could have bought her and simply used her to breed in an attempt to grow Aegon from a bean, as Tyrion puts it. She might have then died of grayscale, or Illyrio could have disposed of her for knowing too much and being a liability. Regardless, Illyrio's story about falling head over heels in love with a whore is fishy at best, and we expect some part of that to be untrue. And then there's Illyrio himself. The statue of himself as a boy, if it is indeed him, shows us that he used to be a warrior with straight blonde hair. This fits well with being Aegon's father, so perhaps that statue was George's way of showing us the real Illyrio and making him a plausible candidate for the boy's father. Illyrio as a youth, plus an attractive Valyrian-looking whore, might have been Varys and Illyrio's plan for making the perfect prince on a biological level and someone who could pass as Aegon Targaryen. And as we said, some people believe Illyrio simply loved Sarah and that she is the Blackfire. He's heartbroken by her demise and he wants to honour her by putting their son on the Iron Throne. So there are some options. But we do think in the Blackfire plot that he would definitely be Aegon's father. Illyrio's been extremely invested for so long, we can only imagine it's because of blood ties. We wonder, as others do, if Illyrio could be the descendant of Bittersteel and Daemon Blackfire's daughter, Calla, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah, we find it curious that we're effectively told by Illyrio that the Blackfires live on in the female line, and there's only one female Blackfire who's been named by George, Calla, who just happens to have been married to the most ardent supporter of the Blackfire cause. Illyrio would have good cause to be proud of his heritage and be a staunch Blackfire loyalist, in his youth, he was a warrior, much like Damon Blackfire, and he's grown into a lecherous and exceptionally large man, not unlike Aegon the Unworthy. Here's some ideas about Illyrio, and then there's Varys. Fans have noted what they think are hints to him being a Targaryen. 
Varys is described as being hairless as an egg, an egg or egg on the fifth, shaved his head to hide his Targaryen hair. So could Varys be doing something similar? It's also said in game that only the blood of the dragon would ever know the secrets of the fortress the dragon lords had built. And of course, Varys knows these very well. His castration and the alleged blood magic that accompanied it might also support the idea that Varys has king's blood. In this case, the Aerion bright flame idea is appealing, but as we said, he could just be a blackfire. We think there's a literary purpose to him being castrated so he couldn't spawn a line of his own. And so him throwing in with Illyrio instead makes perfect sense. And we just don't think the Varys-Illyrio conspiracy relationship would work if Varys was able to have children and a line of his own. And like we said, in the Brightfire theory, Varys would be a descendant of Arion Brightflame. Arion's trueborn son was overlooked in the line of succession, so his descendants might have reason to be disgruntled with the Targaryens. Alternatively, Arion spent time in Lys while in exile, where George has said he may have fathered bastards, and as that was where Varys was born, some see a potential link there. And there's also a mention of a bright dragon in Makoro's dragon prophecy. So altogether, an interesting idea there. Alternatively, Varys could simply be another Blackfire descendant who lost his ability to breed and, like we said, is therefore thrown in with Illyrio to try and empower the Blackfires. Again, we should mention the idea that he's Sarah's brother, and some people think that's what glues the three of them together. But one point that works against Sarah being a Bright Flame descendant is the fact that Aegon would then be a mix of red and black dragon, which we think might diminish the red versus black theme. The idea that Sarah is Varys' sister is also problematic. First, their only connection appears to be Lys, and perhaps more troubling, why would Illyrio have married his first wife if his friend's sister, Sarah, was so important to their triangle all along. We think Illyrio's first marriage points to him having not met Sarah at that point. So, altogether, it's very hard to pinpoint the exact lineage of these three. But there are several options and variations, and perhaps some of you listeners have your own. But ultimately, as long as either Illyrio or Sarah were Blackfires, the supposed conspiracy makes sense. So in our next segment, we'll look at how we can untangle Varys and Illyrio's scheming, if the Blackfire theory is true, and give our own call on this Blackfire triangle. But first, here's a message from today's sponsor. Hello, listeners of Radio Westeros. My name is Illyrio Mopatis, Magister of the Free City of Pentos. Well, they call it a free city, but I had to pay for all of my bed slaves. I kid. I build my fortune as a dealer in spices, gemstone, dragonbone, and other less savory things. But let's not speak of them. Today I'm here to introduce you to my latest venture, the Pentos Cheese Emporium. We deliver the finest cheeses from across the known world to anywhere in Westeros. 
Robert Baratheon once called me epox-ridden pentoshi cheesemonger, but don't let that put you off. Our cheese is tasty and wholesome, from the delicate hard cheese of Lys to the piquant soft variety from Bravos. But our speciality is a sharp, ripe cultured cheese from the Westerlands that smells of rotting sea cow. A delicious gourmet cheese. All profits will be directed towards achieving my life's work, which unfortunately must remain a secret for now. In the meantime, support the Pentos Cheese Emporium. You'll be glad you did. Our motto is, without the cheese, a bitter meal. The Pentos Cheese Emporium, a golden company. Okay, so Illyrio Mapat is there, extolling the virtues of cheese. So earlier, we ran through the plotting of Varys and Illyrio. Now we want to rewind a little and reassess their work together in light of the Blackfire theory. We'll show how we perceive their schemes fitting together within the Blackfire framework, if the theory is correct, and so there might be some overlap with things we've already discussed. Yes, so here's our version of how Varys and Illyrio's plotting might fit the Blackfire theory. In Pentos, some time ago, Varys and Illyrio meet. They start off poor, but work very well together as a team, something essential for their later plots, and soon they get richer and more powerful. We guess that Illyrio is a Blackfire descendant of Kala and Bittersteel, and that Varys is a descendant of Arian Brightflame. And they realize that they have a shared dream of empowering the dwindling Blackfire line, and this bonds them further together. Their ultimate dream is to do what Damon Blackfire and Bittersteel could not. They're highly ambitious and want to seat a Blackfire on the Iron Throne. So they realize what's needed. Varys must infiltrate King's Landing. Illyrio must grow wealthier and more powerful. Perhaps their first idea was to use the Golden Company to sit Illyrio on the throne in the days when he was a warrior, although it's hard to make a call on this. And as Illyrio becomes wealthier and in a position to fund a plot, Varys becomes infamous as a spymaster. By good fortune or by design, Ares hires Varys, and so he's perfectly poised to affect the events of King's Landing. Now their optimistic, youthful dreams start to look a lot more tangible, and Varys builds a network of spies and learns the secrets of the Red Keep. Remember that Varys believes secrets are a way to obtain power. They are worth more than sapphires, he claims. Their first mission is to shake the foundation of the Targaryen dynasty that's been in place for so long. If the Targaryens are strong, the Blackfires have no chance, and so Varys capitalizes on Ares' paranoia and whispers poison in his ear. This destabilizes Westeros, which would presumably be what Varys wants. Yeah, and so Ares' madness continues to make the Targaryens look bad, and this is all good news for a Blackfire plot, which would presumably rest on public support in Westeros. But then comes Robert's Rebellion. 
Whether Varys wanted the complete destruction of House Targaryen at this point is open for discussion. But remember that Varys advised Ares to keep the gates closed in the face of Tywin Lannister's army and was perhaps in fear of his life. Anyway, after the sack of King's Landing and with House Targaryen in ruin, it's time for Illyrio to have a child. They must have realized the notion of sitting Illyrio on the throne stood as much chance as the Ninepenny King's plot. They need to be more cunning. In our estimation, following the death of his Pentashi wife, Illyrio sought out a Valyrian-looking whore to create the perfect prince with. There's a clear theme of Illyrio and Varys attempting to manufacture an ideal in human form. They want to create an ideal ruler, which echoes one of the reasons the Blackfire movement began. Damon Blackfire supporters believed he was a more worthy leader than Daron. Damon seems to have had the air of the perfect prince, which Varys and Illyrio are trying to recreate. So Illyrio's Blackfire son is born, maybe a year after the sack, and now their scheming has evolved into a faked baby swap. Realising the Blackfires are lacking support, this way they can invade under the Targaryen banner to get Aegon on the throne, knowing they'll get more initial support. And as Robert's reign is relatively steady, the pair decide to sit tight until Aegon is grown and trained and schooled. Varys knows about Cersei and her illegitimate heirs and so bides his time, knowing he can foment war at the right time. Sarah dies somehow, but as a pawn, she's no real loss to the cause, although it's very convenient in terms of keeping the secret. They involve Miles Toyne, Blackheart, the leader of the Golden Company, with a family history that gives him good reason to be loyal to the Blackfires, and a name that implies Blackfire loyalty. Varys and Illyrio tell him about their plot, the first and only person they've ever trusted. And we wonder if Illyrio has the Blackfire sword, and showed it to Miles to seal the deal. Anyway, Toyne signs a contract tying the Golden Company to the cause of seating Aegon Blackfire on the Iron Throne when the time is right. We think the contract written blood could be the original contract dating to Bittersteel's founding of the Golden Company, stating that they would support a Blackfire claimant above all else, superseding any other contract. And Lady Gwyn wonders if the blood of the contract is actually a metaphor referring to the blood of the Blackfire line, blood we suppose has been inherited by Illyrio. In either case, Illyrio would have then invoked this contract with Miles Toyne. And Miles, knowing the full extent of the scheme, but with the absolute need for secrecy, made a second contract to show his men telling his captains that Aegon is a Targaryen and not telling the foot soldiers even that. This is what we think Harry Strickland has seen and we don't think he'd be aware of a Blackfire plot. And around the same time, they hired John Connington, who'd been in the Golden Company. He'd been close to Miles Toyne, rising high in the ranks. This could indicate that Miles knew about the Aegon plot before that and had been playing him along, or he could have just been glad to have a competent exile to work alongside. And like we said earlier, Connington is the perfect man to help pass off Aegon as a Targaryen. Varys insists he fake his own death, 
And so John will be returning from the dead like Aegon and will do anything to make amends for, as he sees it, letting down Rhaegar. His devotion to Rhaegar makes him the perfect patsy here. Now, eight years later, Miles Toyn dies, but the contract is written blood, and now it's probably just Barris and Illyrio who know the real plot. This could be the purpose of George killing off Miles Toyn, so the secret dies with him. Later on, the pair are keeping tabs on Viserys and Danny running around the free cities. They don't care enough to help them, but soon realise they can be used as part of the plot. Illyrio invites them to his manse and schemes to sell Danny to the Dothraki. Varys and Illyrio realise that Danny's rare Valyrian looks and status as an exiled Targaryen princess would be irresistible to a Karl, and so it's a sound and well-considered plan. Through this marriage, they could foment an invasion of Westeros by the Dothraki. They hope the Dothraki will be true to their words and invade with Viserys, or failing that, their contingency plan is to provoke an invasion by ordering a hit on Drogo's wife via Robert Baratheon, which we see with the wine cellar plot. Now, this invasion would make Viserys look very bad. With a barbarian horde at his back, he'd be unlikely to obtain support from the Westerosi lords. Such an invasion would wear down the Westerosi defenses, especially if time to coincide with internal conflict in Westeros. So Illyrio gives Danny the dragon's eggs, helping sell Danny as an exotic dragon princess to the Dothraki. He also anticipates that Viserys will sell the eggs to fund his invasion, and remember that Illyrio said he didn't expect Danny to survive the Dothraki Sea. So what would he expect would happen with the eggs? As it happens, Viserys nearly does take the eggs. He's stopped only by Ser Jorah. Jorah was sent by Illyrio as Viserys' sworn sword, and we think it's highly likely that the relationship between Varys and Jorah was initiated by Illyrio at his manse. Although on one level, Jorah's spying for the realm, he's also unknowingly providing the conspiracy with vital information. They also know he has a relationship with the Dothraki, the smarts and the ambition for home to help coordinate an invasion. This theme of enlisting desperate exiles who have different uses runs through the conspiracy. And Illyrio calls in the contracts with the Golden Company, telling them that they'll be joining forces with Viserys and the Dothraki, explaining why Tristan Rivers thought this was the plan. But some fans wonder if maybe the real plan might have been to win the Golden Company's confidence pull them out of the disputed lands and have them well-placed to introduce Aegon, remembering that Tristan Rivers is a foot soldier and would be very unlikely to know Illyrio's full plans. They could then split the Golden Company with Aegon from Viserys and Dothraki and launch a separate invasion. Once the Dothraki had done their absolute worst in Westeros, Aegon could swoop in like the perfect prince set against his laughable counterpart. The Golden Company could fulfil their mission of seating a Blackfire on the throne without even realising who Aegon really is. 
But in invading, taking King's Landing and saving the day from the Dothraki, Aegon would appear to be the hero against the horror that Viserys brought across the Narrow Sea. He could be the champion of Westeros, and if ever they wanted to publicly unveil him as a Blackfire, the time would be ripe. And it's now that Illyrio comes to King's Landing and conspires with Varys. Littlefinger has been playing his game with Starks, Baratheons, Arryns, and Lannisters, and with the evidence of incest and betrayal at hand, war is now in the air. Recall that we talked about Illyrio asking for a delay, saying that war is coming too soon, given the Dothraki aren't ready to invade. Varys replies he wants to hasten the invasion and not delay the Stark-Lannister conflict. And this is where we see some ingenious scheming from Varys and Illyrio. Yeah, Varys immediately whispers to Robert about Danny being pregnant, perhaps as soon as the day after the clandestine meeting, and Robert orders Danny's assassination. Illyrio then writes to Jura to warn him of it. So, not only is Danny saved, but the Dothraki are provoked into invading, conveniently suiting Varys and Illyrio's plans. It's almost like they manipulated that entire situation. And note that Danny would have been killed by Varys's whispers here if the wine cellar had succeeded. She's rather disposable at this point, which should serve as a hint at how much value is placed on House Targaryen here. But what's great about this plan is that it also drove a wedge between Ned and Robert. Given the well-known past quarrel between Ned and Robert about the killing of children, Varys's manoeuvre predictably caused discord between the two. Ned gave up his office and planned to go back north. This would have delayed the Stark-Lannister conflict as Illyrio requested. And keeping Ned away from Robert is another goal as Varys wants the king to be vulnerable and unprotected. So with one whisper, Varys nearly pulls off a plan that would have worked to his favour on several levels, delaying conflict and hastening an invasion as they had schemed. Unfortunately for them, the intervention from Littlefinger, luring Ned out into the streets of King's Landing and possibly tipping off Jaime Lannister to his whereabouts, stopped Ned going back the next morning and so scuppered that part of the plan. Interesting to note how these game players can affect each other. And soon Varys manipulates Joffrey and Cersei into firing Barristan from the Kingsguard, and Barristan travels to Illyrio in search of Viserys, whom we know is dead. Viserys and Drogo's deaths mean Varys and Illyrio have to change their plans once again. And while Danny might have previously been disposable to them, she now has dragons, and they think a lot differently about her. After Jorah informed Varys on her whereabouts, Illyrio sent Barristan to Carth with ships to take them back to Pentos. Illyrio schemed to pair up Aegon with Danny in order to make use of her dragons. They can always bump Danny off further down the line if needs be. And Barristan is a good man to send to Danny for several reasons. First, like Strong Belwas, he's a great warrior and he can protect her, remembering the value of those baby dragons. He proves his worth right away by saving her life. 
Barristan is another exile desperate for home, and so will encourage Daenerys to think about going for the throne. And given his history with her family, she will no doubt respect him and seek counsel. Also, Barristan is a man of honour, looking for the perfect Targaryen heir to back. Note that he's assessing Danny when he masquerades as Arstan. Well, Varys and Illyrio believe they have the perfect prince, and crucially, according to their story, he has a better claim to the throne than Danny, which Barristan would have no doubt respected. And Illyrio might have sent Barristan to Carth both to keep him away from the Golden Company, whom he'd fought against in the War of the Nine Penny Kings, and with the thought that once Danny was safely back in Pentos, the old knight would advise her to marry Aegon. As our friend Brendan Beefish puts it, Barristan might have been the glue to bind Danny and Aegon together. In which case, they would have ultimately ended up with a very well-respected knight in Aegon's corner anyway. In this sense, Barristan can be viewed as a counterpart to John Connington, since his support would add another layer of legitimacy to their candidate. So several possible reasons to send Barristan to Danny rather than keeping him back for Aegon. It's worth noting that Barristan doesn't seem to like Varys, and this is an example of why Varys and Illyrio must keep their partnership strictly confidential. Anyway, Danny has a mind of her own, just like the Dothraki. She changes course and takes on Slaver's Bay instead of going to Pentos. Illyrio, who now anticipates that she'll move west and pass Volantis, invokes that contract's written blood, and after the Golden Company breaks their contract with Mia, he sends them towards Volantis. Their commander, Harry Strickland, thinks Aegon is a Targaryen, and in spite of a presumed secrecy clause, he tells his soldiers this, underlining exactly why there was a need for complete secrecy in the Blackfire plot, and why you wouldn't tell someone like Harry Strickland. Illyrio sends Aegon, Connington and others to meet the Golden Company separately, but once again the pawn in the game thinks for herself, and Danny decides to rule as Queen of Marine. And so the Golden Company wait near Volantis with no Daenerys in sight. In the meantime, Varys has helped Tyrion escape King's Landing. Tyrion isn't a warrior like Barristan, and so what use does he have for the imp? Well, get another exile who will be desperate for home and will plant seeds regarding the invasion. He's a good strategist, so like Barristan, they might want him to eventually be in Aegon's corner when he marries Danny. But there's another use for Tyrion. Dragons. Yeah, Danny's dragons are growing, but she's been acting on instinct so far. She doesn't yet know how to control or ride them. Varys and Illyrio would obviously want Aegon to make use of them. And Tyrion happens to be something of an expert in dragon lore. In Dance, it says, Tyrion had read much more of dragons through the years. So Varys the Spymaster would surely have known that Tyrion knew a lot about dragons. And sure enough, soon John Connington puts Tyrion to work. It says, Griff had commanded him to set down all he knew of dragon lore. The task was a formidable one, 
but the dwarf labored at it every day, scratching away as best he could as he sat cross-legged on the cabin roof. So perhaps a good reason to employ Tyrion. But then the imp throws a spanner in the works by convincing Aegon to invade Westeros over that game of Sivas. Connington contracts Grayscale, rescuing Tyrion, and so he's now in a rush to invade Westeros. Tyrion is lost to an unknown mishap in Siloris, war is brewing in Volantis, and the Golden Company need to move. And so together they all head west, leaving Danny and her dragons in Essos. Altogether, the master plan is once again well and truly out the window and continues to require evolution. The loss of the three dragons is a really significant blow. If Aegon could have ridden one, it could have greatly heightened the chances of success. And invading with just the 10,000 strung Golden Company seems measly by comparison. But all isn't lost, as John Connington highlights the need for allies in Westeros. And finally, Varys reappears in the Red Keep. He kills Pycelle, one of the last Lannister supporters, and Kevin Lannister as well, because he was the voice of reason in the capital. With Aegon taking Storm's End, now is the time to make the capital as unstable as possible, as Varys' last words to Kevin highlight. Rather than revealing the Blackfire plot, he's happy to let Kevin think the boy is Aegon Targaryen. Remember that there are little birds in the room, and so he wouldn't want to divulge any sensitive information after all these years of plotting. We've seen with Wex Pike how even mutes can make great witnesses. Also, we don't know the extent of Kyburn's setup as Master of Whisperers, so Varys being guarded here was really good practice, and notes that he doesn't actually lie in the passage. Referring to the boy as Aegon would be correct in either case, as the Blackfire theory supposes the imposter is also called Aegon, named so because it's always been his destiny to replace Rhaegar's dead son. Varys tells of his perfect prince before Kevin is finally murdered. Okay, so that's how we think the Varys Illyrio scheming would fit together. Their modus operandi, if the Blackfire theory is correct. It's certainly difficult to account for all their decisions, but that's the best we can piece it together for now. And admittedly, there's a fair amount of speculation and second-guessing required in the absence of important details and so on. As such, we wouldn't expect everything we've said to be spot on by any means, but it's our best guess at this moment in time. Yeah, and so if their scheme does turn out to be something like this at least, it's time to evaluate the plan as a whole. We're saying that while Varys does his whispering in King's Landing, Illyrio tries to coordinate a wide range of unknowing pawns in the duo's own Game of Thrones. These pawns are usually exiles who are partially driven by a yearning for home. Viserys, Danny, Jorah, Barristan, Tyrion, John Connington, Rolly Duckfield and the Golden Company are a motley bunch when you consider them as unknowing allies to a Blackfire plot. So have the backbone of your decades-old plan rest on such a bunch 
is both resourceful and desperate at the same time. And this is how we would assess the Blackfire plot, if indeed there is one. And as you might have noticed, there's a continual theme of the plan going wrong. We see right from the offset that, to the detriment of Varys and Illyrio's plans, their pawns have minds and ambitions of their own. One of the first examples is something we learn from Danny in the Dothraki Sea. Magister Illyrio had urged Viserys to wait in Pentos, had offered him the hospitality of his manse, but of course Viserys would have none of it. He would stay with Drogo until the debt had been paid, until he had the crown he had been promised. And of course, the proud and suspicious Viserys insisted on riding away to his eventual end. Later, Tristan Rivers of the Golden Company sums up their problems with Illyrio's plans. He says, Which plan? The fat man's plan? The one that changes every time the moon turns? First, Viserys Targaryen was to join us with 50,000 Dothraki screamers at his back. Then the beggar king was dead, and it was to be his sister, a pliable young queen who was on her way to Pentos with three new hatched dragons. Instead, the girl turns up in Slaver's Bay and leaves a string of burning cities in her wake, and the fat man decides we should meet her by Volantis. Now that plan is in ruins as well. And so, time and again, we see the pawns using their own free will to go where they want to go, not where Varys and Illyrio want them to, compromising carefully laid plans in their wake. This brings to mind Littlefinger's lesson to Sansa that, quote, In the Game of Thrones, even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make the moves you've planned for them. And Varys and Illyrio adjust their course to compensate. And again, we see both the resourcefulness and desperation we feel characterises their plotting. On one hand, relying on plans which can be ruined by a third party on a whim is desperate. On the other, this might be an inevitable part of the game. And Varys and Illyrio always seem to have another trick up their sleeve. They seem to have a plan that allows for degrees of change and evolution. In this way, the proposed Blackfire plot seems both fragile and flexible. One factor in their failings with their pawns is that they're rarely in close proximity to them, or for that matter, to each other. In A Dance with Dragons, Illyrio claims he can't travel, but we know he secretly went to King's Landing in A Game of Thrones, so as we've said, We can assume that Illyrio needs to be at Pentos headquarters in order to communicate with Varys and coordinate plotting. This is all well and good until one of the pawns gets a bright idea. For example, Illyrio could have been with Aegon, offering counsel before the boy chose to head to Westeros after Tyrion's inception. In this respect, Littlefinger plays the tighter game as a solo player who doesn't rely on a partner in crime and seems to benefit from closer proximity to his pawns. But that said, if there's a Blackfire plot going on, Varys and Illyrio's plan is highly ambitious, so we should give some credit where it's due. Remember where these two started, in poverty and as nobodies, far away from King's Landing. They've both risen very high, and who knows the full extent of their scheming along the way. 
but they've done very well to be in their respective positions. Although often desperate, the proposed Blackfire plan is nothing short of audacious. Having seen the way of it with some of the previous Blackfire rebellions, this plan is truly innovative, smart, and still has a good chance of coming into fruition. Yeah, the proof is in the pudding, and we see Aegon in a very good position going into the Winds of Winter. There's every possibility he could be seated on the Iron Throne relatively soon, in which case the methodology and failed subplots will count for nothing. There could at last be a Blackfire on the Iron Throne, and in that sense, it could be Varys and Illyrio's more ingenious maneuvers that are remembered. However, there's a big question mark in the long term about this notion of creating a perfect prince, even if he does take the throne initially. There's every indication that from our glimpses of Aegon, for all the nurturing and growing from a bean, that that boy is not near perfect. One day after rising high, this impossible notion of a perfect Aegon might fall foul to a moment of imperfection and could bring the alleged Blackfire plot to ruin. Varys seems completely blind to this possibility. He's obviously never played Savas with the kid. Savas <laughs> pieces everywhere. And also to consider... There's the issue of the unveiling of Aegon as a Blackfire. Whether Varys and Illyrio are aiming to do this one day is open for discussion. And we'll talk about it more in the next episode. But for now, think on all those unknowing pawns and all those potential allies who will be less than impressed if Aegon is unmasked and perhaps given Daemon Blackfire's blade, which is how the first civil wars began in the first place. And if they never plan to unveil Aegon and have him reign as an unknowing Blackfire, their plan, if successful, seems in danger of being one step up from an in-joke between Varys and Illyrio. With this in mind, our final point of consideration is the human cost of this conspiracy. Varys and Illyrio operate with a similar lack of morals as the most despicable players in the game like Littlefinger and Tywin. With disposable pawns, mutilated young child spies and plans to bring the Dothraki to Westeros to rape and pillage just as a distraction, the Blackfire theory paints the pair in a truly cutthroat and selfish light. Varys' assertion to Kevin that he's working for the realm for the children seems nothing short of absurd, and with the sense he's talking sincerely, we wonder about the integrity of any plan that's so quick to accumulate so much damage to innocent people. Varys might believe he has the best intentions for the realm, but according to the old adage, that's how the road to hell is paved. So, in conclusion, desperate and resourceful, fragile and flexible, ingenious and flawed, with a chance at both success and despair, sailing from idealistic to sociopathic, these are the contradictory ways in which we would assess the proposed Blackfire plotting of Varys and Illyria. 
And before we have a final word on the likelihood of the Blackfire theory coming true, we just want to give a shout out to our friends Ragnarok, who you'll remember was the guest for our Taiwan episode, and also to Aziz at History of Westeros podcast. We consulted with them both to make this complex episode as tight as possible, so thanks to both you guys. And if you want further reading about the Blackfire theory, we recommend an essay by Brendan Beefish called Blood of the Conqueror Part 3, The Conspiracies, and that's at the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, so be sure to check that out as well. Okay, so the Blackfire theory. We've given the case for it and showed how it might all fit together, and so the choice is yours on whether you buy it or not. Despite the proposed modus operandi being quite speculative in places, we think that the Blackfire theory as a whole does make a lot of sense with the Blackfire history and so on. Yeah, you really need to have read Duncan Egg to understand the importance of the Blackfires, we think. And with the parts about Miles Toyne and the Golden Company, a pinch of prophecy and symbolism, we think it makes a compelling theory that would add great depth to the story, bridge over from Duncan Egg, and be a very interesting twist. We've tried to answer every objection we've seen to the theory, and whether you buy the explanations or not is left to you guys. But when evaluating the evidence for a Blackfire conspiracy, you also have to weigh it against the evidence that Aegon is real. As Ragnarok has pointed out in his essay, The Blackfire Triangle, there's only the word of a few unreliable characters and really not much else, so do bear that in mind. We should also mention the third option, that Aegon is fake, but he's actually... Nobody of significance, just a normal boy dressed up as a prince, the Perkin Warbeck of Westeros. So make your choice between those three options, and we desperately await the Winds of Winter for more answers and more intrigue. We'll be back next time with a kind of continuation. It's a look at Aegon's invasion and the rather checkered company he keeps, and we really hope that you will join us for that. So, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of one of the most complicated plots in A Song of Ice and Fire. As we mentioned, we'll be back soon with an extended look at Aegon VI Targaryen. And now it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R.R. R. Martin for Blackfires, Varys and Illyrio, and Schemes and Plots, and to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use elements of his music in our production. And thanks also to our listeners. As always, you guys spreading the word and helping out with donations helps, so thanks so much for you. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate, comment on our content there, or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. We're also on YouTube, where you can access all our episodes, comment, and support. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Our channel. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>